Hello and welcome to Dave's Music Room. I'm David Kavlovic, ready to present you another program of favorite recordings from my CD collection. Today's podcast goes out to the cloud, wherever that cloud is. I don't think they live in the sky. Maybe Hoboken? I don't know these things. But as this episode goes out to the internet... It is almost Remembrance Day in Canada and many other places. So I thought the program that I would present today would have a bit of a tie-in to that particular commemoration. The three major groups of music that we're going to listen to somehow have a connection to commemoration. The first thing we're going to listen to are a group of pieces by an American composer originally born in Spain in the year 1812. A formidable date in its own right. This was a musician, composer, band member by the name of Claudio Simon Grafula Morales, better known in the United States as Claudio S. Grafula. As I said, he was born in 1812 and he lived until about 1880. He emigrated to the United States from the island of Menorca, which is off the coast of Spain, but was occupied by the British after the Napoleonic Wars, he immigrated oh, about the age of 28 and made quite the career for himself in the United States. He, in fact, could be considered the first important composer of band music in the United States, definitely before John Philip Sousa, ironically another Iberian Peninsula uh, descendant, being of Portuguese extraction, Grafula's music was extremely popular during the period of the Civil War. So why present this composer and this sort of music? Military music has been around since biblical times, which probably means even before that, perhaps dating as far back as the Sumerian and even earlier uh, civilizations that might have had a military. So music and military, for good or for ill, do go hand in hand. There is a number of re or there are a number of reasons for that. One of which is the discipline of playing a musical instrument definitely translates into the discipline of being a member of the armed forces. By the time you get to the later part of civilization that is closer to our time, 17th, 18th, 19th, 20th century, you now have wind bands, an idea actually that was uh, thought about first by the Turks and their Janissary bands of the 14th, 15th, and 16th century, definitely picked up by Western military entities because they saw the uh, numerous advantages of having military ensembles, music ensembles within their ranks. As I said, it's a discipline to play an instrument and discipline translates into discipline in uniform and in battle even. But it also provides comradeship that is the most important aspect of military music making. You get along with your bandmates, you will look after them in battle as well. The outside factor of military uh, music, in other words, the factor that influences people outside of the military, let's put it that way, is it's good public relations with the public, the public that you are supposedly defending and fighting for. This was the primary reason for the existence of military bands outside of military use in Western Europe and in North and South America. Because who doesn't like a good concert featuring great music and tunes that a public can tap their foot along to? 
military music of this sort was also a great vehicle to promote music from operas. And in fact, a couple of the compositions of Graffula that I'm going to present shortly are arrangements of famous operas at the time of uh, Graffula composing. This was a very common practice and was a great way of uh, performing the better known tunes for a general audience to accept. To accept, to understand uh, music that they wouldn't often get a chance of hearing and maybe it would encourage them to go attend opera. Opera was very popular in the 19th century, even in the United States and especially in the South. Opera was great theater. It was the great theater before film. Let's put it that way. Why do you think there is film music? Opera. So, Graffula composed a number of great pieces that uh, are quite suitable for wind ensemble. They vary from these opera arrangements to gallops and waltzes and marches, although we're not going to hear any marches today of his uh, compositions. The recording that I've chosen is a fascinating one. In 1960 and 1962, the Eastman Wind Ensemble, that's the famous ensemble associated with the Eastman School of Music in Rochester, New York, which was founded by George Eastman, he of Kodak fame, they put together an album of music from the period of the Civil War. What makes this album very interesting, and it was a huge box set on vinyl, comprising two discs on CD, but more so on vinyl, because CDs, of course, can hold more music, it was very well presented uh, and presented as a historic document because the music that they were presenting was historic and the way they were performing it was historic. Whether they mean to or not, this was one of the first discs in a genre that we came to know as period instrument performance. In other words, music performed on instruments that the composers at the time they composed would have recognized. These instruments, of course, were somewhat different than more modern instruments because there's always progress, if you want to call it that way, in developing instruments as there is with anything else. A lot of these earlier recordings now we consider somewhat quaint and hit and miss because the scholarship wasn't up to date at the time, but at least they were trying. That can't be said for this incredible recording because they nailed it. They um, did their research and they had great musicians at hand, young students at the Eastman School of Music. All the instruments involved were not manufactured after the 1860s. So we get a wonderful sound blend that um, hadn't been heard at that time for almost a hundred years. That's what makes this disc still a great uh, album to get. It features music from both the Union and Confederate troops. Graffula was a composer for the Union side. I parenthesize saying thank goodness. So let's listen to a number of selections from this disc, uh, the compositions of Claudia Graffula that featured on this disc. You might recognize one or two of them because Ken Burns used them in his documentary for PBS on the Civil War. We start with the Freischutz Quick Step there. We have tunes taken from Weber's very popular opera, Der Freischutz, an example of the opera settings I was telling you about. Then Port Royal Gallop, Nightingale Waltz, another quick step entitled Un Ballo in Maschera, so that's tunes taken from Verdi's famous opera. We then have Graffula's quick step, Cavalry quick step, and finally Storm Gallop. So, here to perform these charming compositions by Claudio S. Graffula, let's listen to the Eastman Wind Ensemble 
under the direction of Frederick Fennell.
Sparks by Claudio S. Grafula for Wind Band. It's performed by the Eastman Wind Ensemble under the direction of Frederick Fennell, giving us a nice picture of the sort of band music one would have heard during the period of the Civil War and afterwards in the United States. This music sort of evokes the Sunday concerts in the park in the bandstands that occurred all over North America. This, of course, was all a byproduct of a more militaristic use of this music. Now, another thing that music is used for, as I pointed out in the introduction, is for commemorative purposes. We now turn to a work by Hector Berlioz, composed in 1840 for the commemoration of the 10th anniversary of the July Revolution. So, this music that we're going to hear, the Grande Symphonie Funèbre et Triomphale, is in fact propaganda, music as propaganda. There's no other way to describe it. Now, even though this piece was a commission by the regime of King Louis-Philippe I, that was the la one of the last kings of France who was installed during the July Revolution of 1820, doesn't necessarily mean that Berlioz had any sympathy for this regime. In fact, he didn't. However, money is money, you could say he was being a mercenary of, of sorts, but he also did want to pay tribute to those who had fallen. So that's not a bad thing to do. And anyhow, he was going to be paid 10,000 francs for this. Not that he hadn't tried to earn money from Louis-Philippe before, because he had tried to offer other works that uh, he wanted to compose in commemoration of all sorts of patriotic events. But the regime was not interested, so... Berlioz would shelve these ideas. Well, he got to resurrect a couple of them for this Symphonie Funèbre et Triomphale. It became a very popular work. When it was premiered in 1840 for the uh, July uh, commemorations, it was, well, first of all, it was meant as a commemoration for those who had fallen. What was going on was that, well, in order to cover up to a certain degree some of their great shortfallings of the past 10 years. There was a lot of corruption and scandal within Louis Philippe's reign. They decided to try to get the public to become a bit more patriotic and honor those who had fallen in the battles of the July Revolution. So on the 10th anniversary, a uh, column was erected on the site of the Bastille and the ashes of those who had fallen were ceremoniously transferred to that site. Enter Hector Berlioz and this particular composition. The work is in three sections, the longest of which is the actual funeral march at the beginning, scored for 200 wind instruments originally. The idea of the work was that as they were processing towards the um, site of the new monument, the music would be heard from far and near as the uh, musicians would be marching along. That's an interesting concept and an interesting conundrum. How do you keep something going for 18 minutes without sounding repetitive? Frankly, only Berlioz was capable of doing something like this. And so he used his skills as a great composer of opera, even though at the time the operas he was composing weren't that well known, but his sculpturing of this music, and that's a great term to use because this is really musical architecture, certainly came in handy. So to keep the interest of those listening 
for a good 18 minutes is quite something. The second half, the second movement of the work, is as if it was an oration read by some sort of celebrant. I don't know if it would have been a priest or not, but in this composition it's none of the above. It's uh, a trombone sounding as if it was uh, reciting a, uh, an homily and then going into an aria. The final movement is an apotheosis, another brilliant triumphal march. I'll get back to that in a second because of what Berlioz did with it a couple of years later, but I should mention, as I said, the work was actually very popular from the outset. There were two public rehearsals of the work before the actual celebrations. During the celebration, it's hard to determine whether the work was received well or not because nobody could hear it, which is really interesting when you consider that there are 200 brass players involved. But there was so much cheering and yelling from the audience attending the whole ceremony that nobody could really tell. But one would assume that because of the association of this work with the event, it still made the work rather popular. And therefore, the best way to put it is the attempt of the government at propaganda to rally the public to their cause was successful. In 1842, Berlioz slightly rescored the work because he knew that a performance involving 200 musicians outside was not always going to be apropos. So the work was scaled down a little bit and the final march movement was also further uh, revised and slightly rescored so that it would include a string ensemble so that it could be played by a symphony orchestra. And 66 bars before the end of the movement, a choir is introduced. Now I gotta read you the text, which is by Anthony Deschamps that the choir sings because this still further um, demonstrates the propagandistic atmosphere of the work. Here's the text. Glory, glory and triumph for these heroes. Glory and triumph, come ye elected of the other life. Change, noble warriors, all your laurels for immortal palms. Follow the seraphim, divine soldiers, into the eternal plains. To their immortal choirs be ye united. Angels radiant and harmonious, burn like them, enter ye sublime victims, glory and triumph for these heroes, they fell in their fatherland's fields, glory and respect for their graves, come ye elected of the other life. Yeah, that's the text. Fortunately, this work transcends the, the rather insipid text. That happens a lot when you think about it. It still is a magnificent and dramatic piece of music. Truly, the opening funeral march is very stark, austere, somewhat frightening, and that's on purpose. Let's hear it now, performed by the John Aldous Choir for those 66 bars and the London Symphony Orchestra under the direction of Sir Colin Davis. Here is Berlioz's Symphonie Funèbre et Triomphale given the opus number of 15.
Symphonie Funèbre et Triomphale, Opus 15, by Hector Berlioz. We heard in this recording for Philips Records. That label doesn't exist anymore. Philips Company doesn't want to associate their name with music anymore. Oh, well. So any further issue of this recording would be under the DECA record imprint. Anyhow, for this recording, for at that time Philips Records, we heard the John Aldous Choir and the London Symphony Orchestra under the direction of Sir Colin Davis. The trombone soloist in the second movement was Dennis Wick. Now, if this were a live concert, it would be at this point that the conductor would single out Mr. Wick from the orchestra and ask him to stand up, and quite often they sheepishly do stand up and accept the applause directed at their great bit for the whole program. So take a bow, Mr. Wick. You are listening, you are a guest in Dave's Music Room. And you're listening to music chosen by me, David Kavlovic. I certainly hope you enjoy the music I select. I've certainly been hearing from you regarding that. I haven't heard any negative comments yet. Not that I would be too upset by that. Everybody has their tastes and whatever. But I do get the sense that you are enjoying the programming I've done thus far. How do I know that? Well, people have sent me emails. And you can send me one too if you so desire. My email address is kapustadave at yahoo.ca. If that's a mouthful to say, if not spell, you can see it embedded in the program details of my podcast from whichever source you use to upload my podcast. Now, let's continue and take an absolutely 180-degree turn from the patriotic merde that Berlioz had to put up with. We now jump forward about 80 or so years to 1946 in an absolutely wonderful composition by Paul Hindemith, a work that I don't think gets played enough, and yet everybody agrees it's a masterpiece. It's a Requiem for Those We Love. That's the subtitle of the work known as When Lilacs Last in the Dooryard Bloomed. If that title sounds familiar, it's the first line of a great lengthy poem by Walt Whitman. Walt Whitman was tremendously affected by the Civil War. When Abraham Lincoln was assassinated, he took this, Whitman that is, took this to great heart. He had already experienced a lot himself during the war, nursing, nursing wounded soldiers back to health. That colored his poetry from then on, so that when the great Lincoln had passed on, it took almost three years for Whitman to come up with a poem that he felt immortalized the great emancipator, as well as put into words Whitman's feeling, not only for the loss of Lincoln, but for the loss of hundreds of thousands of lives in a conflict that should never have occurred but for the insistence of some in the South to preserve a horrendous tradition of slavery. I'm not going to mince words about that. That's exactly what happened. Now it's 1946, and another great American president passed on a couple of years earlier during another great conflagration, this time, of course, the Second World War, and the president was Franklin 
Delano Roosevelt. In 1946, Robert Shaw was looking for somebody to compose a composition presented in honor of the memory of that president, as well as to mourn the war dead more recently, of which again, there were tens of thousands. Hindemith was suggested to Robert Shaw by Robert Shaw's own mentor, fellow by the name of Julius Hereford. Hereford was a big influence on Robert Shaw's life. Hereford must have been an incredible teacher because Robert Shaw was an incredible musician. I met the man and I found him to be absolutely transfixing in his own right when he talks about music, never mind when he conducts. So Hindemith was commissioned to write the work, something he was enthusiastic about doing since he had just become a citizen of the United States. And for his efforts, he was awarded a prize of sorts of a thousand dollars. Doesn't seem like a lot of money, but it's not bad even for 1946 standards. And it was purely symbolic in many ways because there would be income garnered from performances and publication of the work. Robert Shaw has always been enthusiastic about this work. It's been very close to his heart and he recorded it as late as 1986. That's the recording we're going to listen today. As I said, many people find this to be Hindemith's greatest composition of his American period. He certainly had an affinity for the English language because there are few, if any, awkward settings of the texts. We'll just let the music speak for itself. I will tell you that the work is in 11 sections with a prelude. Let's listen to this incredible composition now. The two vocal soloists are Jan de Gattani, that's the soprano, William Stone, baritone. The Atlanta Symphony Chorus and Orchestra are conducted by Robert Shaw. Here is Paul Hindemith's When Lilacs Last in the Dooryard Bloomed, a Requiem for Those We Love.
Returning spring, Trinity, sure to me you bring. Lilac, blooming perennial, and drooping star in the west, and
Yes, where you said all concluded. Dropped in the night and was gone.
sat in the day and looked forth in the close of the day with its light and the fields of spring and the farmer preparing his crops. In the large unconscious scenery of my land with its lakes and forests in the heavenly aerial beauty after the perturbed winds and the storms under the arching heavens of the afternoon swift passing and the voices of children and women the many moving sea tides and i saw the ships how they sail and the summer approaching with richness and the fields all busy with labor and the infinite separate houses how they all went on each with its meals and minutiae of daily usages and the streets how their throbbing strong and the city spent
When lilacs last in the dooryard bloomed, a requiem for those we love. Words by the great American poet Walt Whitman, set to music by Paul Hindemith. In this recording for Tellark Records in 1986, we heard mezzo-soprano Jan de Gitani, baritone William Stone, and the Atlanta Symphony Chorus and Orchestra conducted by Robert Shaw, the very man who commissioned this composition from Paul Hindemith in 1946. I always have to gather my thoughts after listening to this piece. I find it overwhelming in its beauty, in its honor of those who passed on, suffering great in their lives, their losses during battles, the sacrifice they made for their country, and that includes not only the president honored in the poem, Abraham Lincoln, but also Robert Shaw and Paul Hindemith honoring Franklin Delano Roosevelt with this composition, which Paul Hindemith dedicated to Roosevelt's memory. I think it should be programmed more often, especially around commemorations of uh, Remembrance, Remembrance Day in Canada, for example. It's a work I actually try to listen to every so often, especially around Remembrance Day, which is why I programmed it today as this episode goes out close to the date of Remembrance in Canada, which is November 11th. That's it for this episode of Welcome to Dave's Music Room. I certainly hope you found the three sections of this podcast interesting, and I hope to see you again as my guests in this music room. Once again, I'm David Kavlovic.
Thank you for listening.